Welcome back to Songs for FRCR and Brain Tumors Part 3, which is Supracellar Mass Lesions. Supracellar mass lesions, of course, tend to compress the optic chiasm, causing visual disturbance. Hence the song choice, Suddenly I See, a cover of a very famous Katie Tunstall song from one of my favourite movies, Devil Wears Prada. There is a handout with this episode. If you haven't got one, you're probably not on the mailing list or your inbox is full and the emails are bouncing back. Without further ado, let's head straight into Supracellar Mass Lesions, Brain Tumors Part 3. Here we go. I am a firm believer that understanding physiology and of course pathophysiology must begin with a solid foundation in anatomy. Once you can appreciate anatomy, the more you understand something, then the less you have to memorise. So with that in mind, I have to talk about the pituitary and how it's formed. I will keep this very non-technical and very simple. So, a small finger or infundibulum will protrude from the roof of the mouth upwards towards the brain. This is called Rathke's pouch. So we've got a little finger of ectoderm pointing or growing upwards from the mouth towards the base of the brain. This little finger, this Rathke's pouch, is going to form the anterior pituitary. At the same time as this roof of the mouth finger is growing upwards, we have another finger growing downwards from the base of the brain. This finger growing downwards will of course form the posterior pituitary and the two fingers will come together and become very tightly opposed. Of course, Rathke's pouch, remember the finger that grows upwards from the roof of the mouth, will eventually lose its communication with the mouth. The finger growing down from the brain won't do that. Sometimes a tiny gap remains between the anterior and posterior lobes of the pituitary called Rathke's cleft. And that's it. That's all the embryology you need to know. One finger growing up, one finger growing down. The tips of the two fingers come together, making the pituitary gland. The reason I spent a minute describing this is because I want you to appreciate that although the gland is one, it's actually composed of two completely different elements. They are completely unrelated, the anterior and posterior pituitary. Now that embryology is done, I want you to spend a minute looking at the first image of the handout and recap your anatomy. Anatomy is really important to help you understand why patients present with the symptoms they present with. So recap the anatomy and we'll take a break and then move on to pituitary lesions. 
we've covered how the pituitary is formed and you've also gone away and recapped your anatomy. So we know the pituitary sits within the cella, surrounded by a bunch of important structures and the cavernous sinus. We now, of course, have to cover the different lesions that arise from this cellar, supracellar region. And personally, if you take my advice, I wouldn't bother memorising the different mnemonics that are often thrown around. Sachmo is the most common one. I think they're a waste of time because they won't help you in an exam setting. And don't get me wrong, mnemonics have their place and I certainly use them all the time. But as far as supracellar mass lesions go, the lesions I'm going to mention are so different in their demographics and in their appearance and presentation that if you rattle off a list of differentials, you're going to sound like you don't know what you're talking about. What I mean is some of these lesions will occur exclusively in children. Some of them are almost exclusive to postpartum females. So memorising a list of differentials for supracellar mass lesions is not going to help you whittle down which one is the right diagnosis in exams. This is why I'm going to suggest you learn them in a different way, the way that I'm going to present them to you now. So I'm dividing them up into lesions that are intrinsic to the pituitary, so arise from the pituitary itself, and those that are extrinsic, so arise from all the structures surrounding the pituitary gland. Structures that you know very well because I know you have gone away and looked at the anatomy. Let's begin with the intrinsic pituitary lesions, so ones that arise from the pituitary gland itself. And these are super easy because there are only two. The first is an adenoma and the second is hypophysitis. Let's take one at a time. So an adenoma can be either a microadenoma or a macroadenoma. And these are pictured, I've drawn beautiful pictures for you on the handout. A microadenoma is a pituitary adenoma which is less than a centimetre. They are confined to the cella, so they're not going to have mass effect. They're not going to press on the adjacent structures. What they will do is present with some form of hormonal imbalance. The specific pattern of the imbalance will depend on whereabouts in the pituitary the lesion is. And to image it, you need dedicated pituitary imaging. If you've done your neuro block already, you'll know these are very, very thin slices, very focused on the pituitary. And what you will see normally, although the imaging is variable, is a rounded lesion with delayed enhancement. That's it for microadenoma. There's not much more to say. If a pituitary adenoma exceeds the one centimetre cutoff, then it's technically a macroadenoma, which is by far the most common supracellar mass lesion in an adult. 
These will present with mass effect as they grow up and out of the cellar and compress all the structures surrounding it. The specific mode of presentation will depend on exactly what it's compressing. There are two classical presentations, the first of which is when it grows directly upwards and presses up against the optic chiasm. It tends to press the centre of the optic chiasm and of course that's where all the nasal retinal fibres will pass through, giving you the classic bitemporal hemianopia. So that's a macroadenoma growing up and out of the cella and pressing on the centre of the optic chiasm, giving rise to bitemporal hemianopia. FYI, an interesting point, back in medical school, in my exams in first year, one of the questions was about David and Goliath. And the question was asking how David was able to kill Goliath by avoiding being seen in Goliath's peripheral vision. The answer they were of course looking for was that Goliath being a giant had a pituitary adenoma, an excess of growth hormone and causing his gigantism, which gave him bitemporal hemianopia, obviously pressing on the optic chiasm, which allowed David to go around the side of him without being seen. That question was in one of our first year anatomy exams at medical school. I thought it was a very clever question at the time and I still remember it to this day. I only tell you because silly random stories often serve as excellent memory aids. So we're doing macroadenoma. We've talked about when it grows up and out, pressing on the optic chiasm. Another thing it can do is grow into the cavernous sinus. The cavernous sinus anatomy you know very well because you've recapped your anatomy. I keep saying this over and over again. Once it gets into the cavernous sinus, because there are loads of intricate things within the sinus, once it's in there, it's very difficult to resect completely. Within the sinus, of course, it will press up against the cranial nerves, cranial nerve 3 being the most common. And finally, imaging features, you will see an enhancing lesion, which will have, which may have cystic areas, necrotic areas, and may well contain hemorrhage. A feature of pituitary macroadenoma is that it tends to encase the internal carotid artery, but not compress it. So encasing, not compressing, which you can see drawn for you on my diagram. On that diagram, you should be able to appreciate the hemorrhage that I've drawn and the glowing around the lesion that I've drawn, indicating the enhancement and the adenoma surrounding the internal carotid artery, but not actually compressing it. So that's pituitary adenomas. They are micro and macro adenomas differentiated only by size. They present either with hormonal imbalance, if they're small, if they're microadenomas, or with mass effect if they're large, if they're macroadenomas. A microadenoma will be a tiny round lesion with delayed enhancement, often difficult to see, and a macroadenoma will be a large lesion, often containing cystic areas, hemorrhagic areas, and encasing but not compressing the internal carotid artery. That's pituitary adenoma. Take a break and we'll do hypophysitis.
Hypophysitis, which as the name suggests is inflammation of the pituitary and the pituitary stalk, has an identical imaging appearance regardless of its underlying cause. So generally, hypophysitis is what I've drawn for you on the handout. It will often show a big pituitary, which you can see on that picture, enlarging the cella and classically a thickened and enhancing pituitary stalk. Imaging is the same regardless of its cause, but I do want to mention some specific causes because they can be nice exam questions and I've seen them come up before. So the first is lymphocytic hypophysitis. This is lots of lymphocytes accumulating within the pituitary and pituitary stalk. And this is classically a disease of women who have just had or are about to have a baby. So these are women in their third trimester or just postpartum. If the inflammation mostly involves the anterior pituitary, these ladies will present with hormonal imbalance or possibly mass effect. If it's affecting mostly the posterior pituitary, then they may rarely present with diabetes insipidus. The imaging, as I've already said, is going to be big pituitary and a thick enhancing pituitary stalk. Hypophysitis can also occur secondary to granulomatous disease, specifically sarcoid, Wegner's, tuberculosis and Langerhans cell histiocytosis. All of these can cause hypophysitis as well. And imaging is identical. Again, imaging is a big pituitary with a thick enhancing pituitary stalk. A point to note is that Langerhans cell histiocytosis causing hypophysitis is exclusive to children. I have seen this in an option in exam questions. Do not put it down for an adult. It's exclusive to children. That's all I want to say on hypophysitis because I really can't imagine they'd want you to know any more detail than that for an exam. So hypophysitis, quick recap, imaging is the same regardless of the cause. Big pituitary, expanding the cella, thick enhancing pituitary stalk. It can be lymphocytic hypophysitis, which is almost exclusive to women who've just had a baby or about to have a baby. And they will present depending on which bit of the pituitary is inflamed. That's a self-limiting condition. Sometimes steroids help with that. And of course, granulomatous hypophysitis, either caused by the stuff that tends to cause granulomatous problems like sarcoid, Wegner's, TB, and Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which is exclusive to children. That's hypophysitis. Let's take a break and we'll then move on to the lesions that are extrinsic to the pituitary. If you haven't gone over the anatomy yet, for God's sake, go and do that now. to lesions in this region that are extrinsic to the pituitary and I'm going to approach it by going through them in order of how common they are. So 
So we're starting off with the most common lesion, both for adults and the most common for children. We'll start with adults. The most common extrinsic lesion for an adult is a Rathke's cleft cyst. We know what Rathke's cleft is because we talked about it at the beginning. And you can get cyst that arises from a remnant of Rathke's cleft. Rathke's cleft cysts can be completely incidental and they are certainly picked up quite commonly on autopsies. And in that case, they are asymptomatic. But if they do cause symptoms, if they get big and cause symptoms, they are what you would expect. So mass effect on surrounding structures, the optic chiasm or compressing on the adjacent pituitary causing hormonal imbalances. Imaging, you will see a very well-defined midline cystic lesion. 40%, around 40% tend to be confined within the cella and the majority, 60%, will extend out of the cella. The MR signal of a Rathke's cleft cyst depends on the protein content of the cyst. Of course, if the fluid within the cyst is proteinaceous, it's going to be high signal on T1, which around 50% of them are. If the fluid is not heavily proteinaceous, it's going to be low signal on T1. And on T2, the majority, 70% or so, are high signal, as you'd expect for a cystic lesion anywhere. The MR signal of a Rathke's cleft cyst depends heavily on the protein content of the cystic fluid. As we all know, if the fluid is heavily proteinaceous, then the cyst will be high signal on T1, which is around 50% of them. The others are low signal. And as for cystic lesions everywhere, the majority of them are high signal on T2. A pathognomic feature of a Rathke's cleft cyst is a tiny intracystic nodule. The nodule is high signal on T1 compared to the surrounding fluid and low signal on T2 compared to the surrounding fluid. We've drawn it and written that down on the handout. The most important thing I want you to remember about Rathke's cleft cyst, well actually remember all of it because it's quite easy, but the most important thing is that Rathke's cleft cyst don't tend to calcify and they don't tend to enhance. What you will often see is the pituitary around the cyst enhancing, and that gives you something called the claw sign. The claw sign is an enhancing rim of pituitary tissue surrounding Rathke's cleft cyst, but the cyst itself does not enhance. So we'll say it again, a Rathke's cleft cyst is the most common extrinsic supracellar lesion. It is a cystic lesion and the signal on MR generally is high on T2, as you'd expect for a cystic lesion. On T1, it's split 50-50 depending on the protein content. A pathognomic feature is an intracystic nodule. And remember, Rathke's cleft cysts do not calcify and they do not enhance. But the pituitary that surrounds the cyst may well enhance, giving rise to the claw sign. If you look at the picture, we've tried to draw it all for you, so you can see on the picture the claw sign, the pituitary enhancing around Rathke's cleft cyst. You can see half the cyst is low signal, half the cyst is high signal, obviously referring to the 50-50 split on T1 imaging. And you will not see any calcification 
or enhancement of the cyst itself on our picture. We're now going to compare Rathke's cleft cyst with craniopharyngioma. Craniopharyngioma is the corresponding most common paediatric extrinsic lesion. This is why the pictures are next to each other on the handout so you can compare them easily. Craniopharyngioma then has a couple of similarities to Rathke's cleft cyst. The first is that they're both are derived from Rathke's cleft or Rathke's pouch. The second similarity is that they tend to present in the same way. So variable presentation depending on which structures are being pressed. That's where the similarities end however and they have some key differentiating features. One you already know because I've laboured the point that Rathke's cleft cyst is an adult lesion and craniopharyngioma on the whole is a paediatric lesion. There is a subtype, a less common subtype that occurs in late middle age but for the purposes of your exam we're going to say it's a paediatric lesion. These cysts can sometimes contain fat rendering them high signal on T1 weighted imaging. Craniopharyngioma will almost always be calcified. Over 90% of them are calcified. Remember, Rathke's cleft cyst tends to not be calcified. And finally, a craniopharyngioma tends to have solid elements. And these solid elements are very, very intensely enhancing. Quick recap of craniopharyngioma then. Like with Rathke's cleft cyst, it's arising from remnants of Rathke's pouch. It's the most common paediatric extrinsic lesion in the cellar region and it has some key features that differentiate it from Rathke's cleft cyst aside from age of presentation. First of all, it has a lobulated contour because it's composed of multiple cysts. These cysts are often a high signal on T1 because they contain fat and often will also contain hemorrhage again rendering them high signal on T1. They have solid bits that will enhance avidly and are almost always calcified. So I'm going to quickly compare the two again. Rathke's cleft cyst versus craniopharyngioma. Rathke's cleft cyst is an adult's. It never calcifies or almost never calcifies, does not enhance. Craniopharyngioma is in children. It always calcifies, almost always calcifies, and it does enhance avidly. One final differentiating feature is that a craniopharyngioma, as you can see on the diagram, will always appear separate from the pituitary gland, whereas a Rathke's cleft cyst may or may not. That's your two most common supracellar mass lesions. I hope the pictures in the handout help hammer home these points. You should be able to see calcification and I think hemorrhage and enhancement in the picture of craniopharyngioma. So that's it for the most common lesion in adults and children. Let's take a break and we'll move on to the second most common lesion in adults and children. She's tall. 
We now know that the most common supracellar mass lesions extrinsic to the pituitary are Rathke's cleft cyst in adults and craniopharyngioma in children. But what is the second most common lesion in adults and children? We'll start with adults again and again refer to your handouts. I've drawn beautiful pictures for you. The second most common lesion in adults in the cellar region is a meningioma. Now this is classically middle-aged females and there are loads and loads of dual reflections in this area. So loads of places for a meningioma to potentially arise from. As we know, as you'd expect, it's going to be separate from the pituitary. So on imaging, you'll see a lesion that is separate from the pituitary and the cella is resultingly normal. So we've got a middle-aged female with a normal cella and a supracellar mass lesion that is clearly separate from the pituitary gland. Like with other meningiomas, it's going to be iso-intense on T1-weighted imaging. It will be variable appearance on T2 and will show intense contrast enhancement. There are two additional clues to a meningioma in an exam setting. The first of which is they almost always have an enhancing dual tail, one that I have tried to draw in that diagram. The second clue will be they will often cause local hyperostosis. Again, that I've tried to draw for you. So in summary, the second most common supracellar mass lesion in an adult is a meningioma, classically a middle-aged female with a lesion that is intensely uniformly enhancing and separate from the pituitary with a normal cella. Other clues will be there will be an enhancing dural tail and local hyperostosis. That's your meningioma. The final point on meningioma, which I've drawn on the diagram and is often mentioned in textbooks, is that they have a tendency to encase and compress the supraclinoid and the cavernous portion of the internal carotid artery. Compare that to the pituitary adenomas, which remember we said tended to surround and encase, but not compress or narrow the artery. The second most common lesion in a child in the supracellar area, in contrast, is a pilocytic astrocytoma. Now, hang on, I hear you cry. We've met this before and we have met this before. We met pilocytic astrocytoma in brain tumours part one. And if you have a good memory, you'll remember that I said a pilocytic astrocytoma, although it's common in the posterior fossa, it can occur anywhere along the optic tract. You can see it's occurring along the optic tract in the diagram that I've drawn. Again, if you recall from Brain Tumors Part 1, the regular juvenile pilocytic astrocytomas, the JPAs that occur in the posterior fossa in children, are not associated with neurofibromatosis. In contrast, the ones that you may find in the cellar region arising from the optic pathway, they are often associated with neurofibromatosis 1 around a third of patients will have NF1. An optic tract pilocytic astrocytoma is usually, as with most lesions, low signal on T1, 
higher signal on T2 and enhances avidly. These can occur in adults, in which case they tend to be very aggressive. But like with the posterior fossa JPAs in children, the optic pathway JPAs in children are usually benign Hu grade 1 lesions. So to quickly recap JPA or pilocytic astrocytoma, this is the second most common supracellar mass lesion in a child. The most common was a craniopharyngioma. These will arise from the optic pathway, so either the optic tract, the optic chiasm, and will cause visual problems as you'd expect. A third of them are associated with neurofibromatosis 1, and remember, the other JPAs from the posterior fossa are not associated with any kind of phacomatosis. The low on T1, high on T2 and intensely enhancing as you'd expect. And that's it. That's the second most common lesions for adults and for children. For adults, it was a meningioma. For children, it was a pilocytic astrocytoma arising from somewhere along the optic pathway. She makes me feel like I could be a tower, a big strong tower. She got the power to be, the power to give, the power to see. Yeah, yeah. She got the power to be, the power to give, the power to see. Yeah, yeah. She got the power to be, the power to give, the power to see. Yeah, yeah. She got the power to be, the power to give, the power to see. Yeah. So we've covered the most common supracellular lesion in adults and children. We then covered the second most common lesion in adults and children. And finally, I'm going to mention a few other notable lesions in adults and children. In adults, first of all, I've mentioned in the handout epidermoid and dermoid cysts. The reason I'm saying these is because they are commonly asked about in exam questions, because you have to know the basics. Epidermoid and dermoid cysts are no different in the supracellar region than they are if you find them in any other intracranial location. Epidermoid cysts, first of all, the most common way you'll be asked about these in an exam question is to differentiate it from an arachnoid cyst. So I'm going to tell you how to do that. Now an arachnoid cyst contains CSF. An epidermoid cyst does not. An epidermoid cyst will follow CSF on all sequences except for one key difference. When you get to the flare sequences, we know that the signal from CSF is suppressed on flare. So the arachnoid cyst that contains CSF will be suppressed on the flare imaging. And the epidermoid cyst does not suppress on flare. Secondly, it will show, an epidermoid cyst will show restricted diffusion whereas obviously CSF does not. The quick recap, an epidermoid cyst will follow CSF signal on all sequences except for the flare sequence where an epidermoid cyst will not suppress signal. Secondly, an epidermoid cyst will restrict diffusion owing to its high cellularity. That's epidermoid cyst. Dermoids are also have a characteristic appearance tends to be young adult males. Again, these are cysts that contain intracystic fat. 
They're well-defined, lobulated cysts with intracystic fat, which will obviously give them fat density on CT and fat signal on MR. So on CT, there'll be low attenuation as fat is, and on MR, there will be high signal on T1-weighted imaging as MR is. Dermoid cysts do not enhance at all, and they can rupture. If they do rupture, you can get leakage of the sebum of the fat into the subarachnoid space. They can rupture either spontaneously or during an attempted resection. So dermoid cyst recap, young adult males, cystic lesion containing intracystic fat, which will obviously follow fat signal and fat attenuation on MR and CT respectively. Dermoid cysts do not enhance, but they can rupture, causing leakage of fat and fat droplets into the subarachnoid space. Finally, my notable paediatric lesion is a hypothalamic hamartoma. And I've chosen this because it's a common exam question and it's an easy mark. A hypothalamic hamartoma is a lesion of the tubercinarium. The tubercinarium is the bit of the hypothalamus that lies between the optic chiasm and the miliary bodies. Why is it such an easy exam question? Because the presentation is classical. It's a child, like I've already said, who presents with precocious puberty and gelastic seizures. These are laughing spells. What you will see on imaging is a midline mass, obviously at the tubercinarium, which I've already said is the bit of hypothalamus that lies between the optic chiasm and the mammillary bodies. The mass can be sessile, it can be pedunculated, and it will be isointense on T1, isointense on T2, and will not enhance. The way I always remembered this is that the imaging is the opposite of the presentation. Where the presentation is lots of laughing, which is fun, the imaging is very boring. It's ISO on T1, ISO on T2, and doesn't enhance at all. So it basically does nothing. So that's how I remember the imaging of a hypothalamic hematoma. It's the opposite of what you'd expect for a laughing spells causing lesion. That is pretty much all you need to know on hypothalamic hematoma. That is all the lesions I'm going to go through today. There are others that I've mentioned in the handout which don't really need a separate dedicated space to talk about. One of them, so in adults first of all, aneurysms can happen of the internal carotid artery and imaging and presentation are what you would expect. Mass effect and then imaging as for an aneurysm. Then there are metastases which can occur to the pituitary. By and large, breast cancer is the most common cancer to metastasize to the pituitary. I've also mentioned lymphoma, but again, there's nothing specific to say about lymphoma within the pituitary gland. The reason these three are on there is because they will always be part of your differential diagnosis. In children, the other ones I haven't talked about are germinoma. Now, germinoma I'm going to talk about next week because although 20% of germinomas can occur here in the supracellar lesion, 80% occur as a pineal mass, so within the pineal region. And next week we are doing brain tumours part four, which is, surprise, surprise, 
pineal mass lesions. We'll have a short musical break and then a final very quick recap. Here is our final recap. We started off talking about the pituitary gland and how it's formed and then talked about lesions that were intrinsic and extrinsic to the pituitary gland itself. We started with the intrinsic lesions of which there were two, adenomas and hypophysitis. Adenomas can be micro or macro depending on whether they are less than or more than a centimetre respectively. Hypophysitis is inflammation of the pituitary stalk and can either be lymphocytic, in which case it's a disease of peripartum or postpartum females, and it can also be granulomatous, in which case it's caused by things like sarcoid, tuberculosis and Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which I've said so many times is a disease exclusive to children. So Langerhans cell Hypophysitis is exclusive to children. We then moved on to the extrinsic pituitary mass lesions and the extrinsic lesions most common in adult was a Rathke's cleft cyst. The most common in a child was a craniopharyngioma and the main differences between the two, remember, a Rathke's cleft cyst will not be calcified, it will not enhance and you can get the claw sign where you have enhancing pituitary tissue surrounding the whole Rathke's cleft cyst. The craniopharyngioma in comparison will be almost always calcified. It will enhance avidly and finally it will always appear separate from the pituitary whereas a Rathke's cleft cyst may or may not appear separately from the pituitary. That was the most common lesion for an adult and for a child. The second most common for an adult was a meningioma, classically middle-aged females. And the key features here will be there'll be an enhancing dural tail, often hyperostosis, and the meningioma will be intensely and uniformly enhancing. It will tend to surround and compress and narrow both the supraclinoid and the cavernous portion of the internal carotid artery. The cella is usually normal and of course the meningioma will appear separate from the pituitary gland. The most second most common lesion in a child was the optic pathway meningioma, so the astrocytoma, the pilocytic astrocytoma. That was like a pilocytic astrocytoma elsewhere but occurring along the optic pathway the optic chiasm, the optic tracts, so the optic radiations, and this will be associated with neurofibromatosis 1 in 30% of cases. The other notable lesions I mentioned in adults were epidermoid and dermoid cysts, and in a child, hypothalamic hamartoma, which classically presents with gelastic seizures and precocious puberty. Remember the imaging for hypothalamic hamartoma was boring 
So it was ISO 1T1, ISO 1T2 and no enhancement. The most boring person at the party is the hypothalamic hamartoma. I have not mentioned pituitary carcinoma because it is exceedingly rare. I'll be very surprised if any of you ever see one in your working lives, let alone have one in an exam question. Of course, completing your differential will always be metastases, particularly from breast cancer and lymphoma. In children, completing the differential will be germinoma, which I will talk about next week in detail. I mentioned right at the beginning, some people do like to use a mnemonic to learn the different lesions. And while I think the way I've shown it to you is a lot better and a lot more organised, if you do like mnemonics, then I think SACHMO is the one that I hear used most often. SACHMO stands for the S is for sarcoid, which remember that's part of the granulomatous hypophysitis. The A stands for aneurysm, which we've already talked about. The T is teratoma, in other words, one of the germinomas, which I'll talk about next week. C is the craniopharyngioma, or a cleft cyst, Rathke's cleft cyst. Remember, both of these are the most common extrinsic lesions. H is a hypothalamic hamartoma, which we've talked about. Um, M is the metastases and meningioma. And then O is optic nerve glioma, or the pilocytic astrocytoma. So I've already been through all these Sachmo lesions, but I've gone through them in a different way, which I hope is easier to remember and easier to retain. We are all done. I did try to keep this as short and succinct as possible, but it is a fairly big topic and I did want to make sure the main points were hammered home. So it may have gone on a bit longer than I wanted. Hope you enjoyed it anyway. Hope you find the handout useful. A lot of work does go into them. And we will see you next week for Brain Tumours Part 4. Any comments, compliments, complaints, do drop us an email. We love, love, love hearing from you. And we will see you next week with Brain Tumours 4 called Pineal Mass Lesions. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, guys.